Our scripture this, for a while this year, will be John 17. We'll begin in verse 1 today. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 1073. And today when we read, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back and read verse 1 and 2, which is what we'll focus on today. And so as you're turning, I ask that you join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So again, our scripture is John 17, beginning in verse 1. If you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. That's why we gave you the page number so you can find it. And if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that Bible with you. You're not stealing from us. It's a free gift from us to you because we believe in the power of the word of God and we want you to have it. I also want to welcome uh, the people who are joining us via the live stream online. Uh, I got reports Uh, towards the end of last year that uh, on average between our services that are streamed online over a hundred other people worshiped with you far and wide and so by merely having a camera and internet connection and being willing to use them you as first christian church of the beaches are reaching the world with the gospel and for those that are worshiping online with us i'm so excited and glad you are here If you have a prayer request, you can go to our website, fc2b.org, and you can find a prayer request there that you can submit so that we can be praying for you. Now, it's 2020. How should we start off this next decade of preaching? Well, let's go to how we started 2019. We're going to go to Acts, right? Just briefly, hear me out. Hear me out for a moment. In Acts 2, verse 42, it's written, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, we can't spend that whole year in Acts and not learn anything from it. In fact, it was this scripture in Acts that is part of our heritage. See, we're part of the Christian church, which is also part of independent Christian churches, Disciples of Christ, and Church of Christ. And they began in the early 19th century, like very, very early, like 1801. And they sought out to restore the New Testament church, which is why they're co- we're called part of the Restoration Movement or part of the Stone Campbell Movement. It began in the frontier in Kentucky with revival meetings with preachers from all kinds. There was Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and, and people were praising God for weekends. And it began with a revival in which some people fell out for days before they awoke and they had been given salvation. This is kind of where we begin. And so we use the New Testament to be prescriptive, to give us regulations on how we should be together as church. And here in Acts 2.42, it tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We do that when we're in study, when we're in Sunday school, when we're in small groups, and when we're here gathered in worship at this moment of preaching. It says they also gave and devoted themselves to the fellowship. Not only do we love hugging each other's necks here, we enjoy it around food. We enjoy laughing, telling jokes, bemoaning the Jaguars and their lost seasons. 
but also encouraging one another and being there in times of need to comfort. That's part of fellowship. And then every Sunday we gather and we break bread together. This is why we break bread every Sunday, because we see it in Scripture that the early church, the New Testament church, did just that. They broke bread together, they prayed together, they fellowshiped together, and they heard the word of God together. They were church. And finally it says they prayed and the prayers. They prayed together. They prayed individually, they prayed for one another, and they prayed collectively as a church. And so for 2020, what I would like us to do is we're going to spend a better part of the year going through the New Testament, looking at the prayers of Jesus. We're going to listen to his prayers, and we're going to learn from his prayers so that we, too, by seeing what Jesus did, can grow deeper in our own prayer life with God. And so that's the, the purpose of this, I wanted to give you the brief background of it. Now, before we read John 17, you, you got to know a little background. And if you're unfamiliar with what's happening, right here in John 17, we have from uh, about the middle of John 12 through John 16. What's happened is it's now uh, Passover. Jesus has gathered in an upper room with his disciples. He's washed feet. He's broken the bread and he's prayed over the cup and shared it with everyone. And then he's dismissed Jesus. And he spent some time teaching the disciples, the apostles, and, and giving them promises before them. And it's the night before he is to be crucified. And after he's done teaching and making promises to them, but before he gets arrested, Jesus prays. And John 17 is that prayer. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a, a beautiful prayer. It's one that gives us assurance. It gives us hope. If you've ever wondered how it is Jesus intercedes on your behalf, listen to this prayer. This is Jesus communicating with God the Father. This prayer is also so beautiful because we see in it that a glimpse, a revelation of how the triune God is in an intimate relationship with one another. For we see God the Son communicating, praying to God the Father by the power of God the Spirit. And so as we enter into John 17 for a period of time, it's rich with truths. And so we're going to break it down so we can understand it easier. But if you would join me now in John 17, we'll begin in verse 1. John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because you are not, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. These are, this is Jesus' prayer. High priestly prayer, deeply, deeply profound. It's a blessing that, that we get to listen in and learn from Jesus' prayer here in this moment. There's a lot in there that, that we can see. You can understand why it would give us great assurance to believers to see that this is how Jesus prays. He prays for us to be one. He prays for the unity of his church, of his people. He prays that his truth would be written on our hearts. He prays for our salvation, that we might have eternal life. He prays that we might know him better and more fully. And he prays that the love God has for us will be manifested and made known to each and every one of us. It's a powerful, powerful prayer. And so today we'll begin by looking at the first couple of verses. And it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, this isn't normally how we learned how to pray, is it? I was raised in the church and 
I believe I was taught to bow my head and close my eyes. I remember sitting in the pew one time and opening my eyes to see if maybe I could play with one of my Hot Wheel cars or micro machines I brought with me. And somehow, my parents knew the exact moment I was going to open my eyes, for they were staring right at me. And I quickly, I shut my eyes, and so it becomes that I've got to close my eyes even tighter to make sure my parents don't see me, not fully understanding what's going on and getting a bit older later and realizing, well, wait, why were my parents' eyes open? trying to figure this one out. But here's Jesus showing us that the posture of prayer isn't always a bowed head and closed eyes. Sometimes it's looking up to heaven and crying out to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. The posture of prayer itself is a humbling act. Whether we are physically humbled or not, we are communicating with the Lord, our God. And the very act of prayer is an act of trust and communication with him. And here Jesus begins his prayer, lifting his eyes to heaven. And then he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He says, Father, now, in the Jewish faith, before Jesus, there is no precedent of people calling God Father. Jesus is the first to do it, and then he teaches us to do it, right? When they say, Lord, teach us how to pray, and he goes, pray like this, our Father. And in Luke, it's recorded his earliest tellings that God is Father, right? In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus runs away from his parents and they're in Jerusalem trying to find him, and then they go and they find him in the temple, and he goes, did you not know I would be in my Father's house? See, the language Jesus used for God was revolutionary because it also described the very intimate relationship Jesus had with God. For he says, we are one. And in the same way, his final breath recorded in the Gospel of Luke, hanging on the cross, Jesus then says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. Again, Father. See, in this time, it was quite radical. In fact, it was blasphemous and her heretical for Jesus to use the word Father. And the fa word Father he used was this Aramaic word, Abba. And Abba being the plainest of terms, meaning a child and father relationship. There was nothing significant about it. There was no reverence within it. It was just the same as you or I going and saying, Dad or Daddy. And here's Jesus calling the God Most High, the God of Israel, Daddy. Father. See, for you and I, it's second nature. We were taught to call him Father. This is how Jesus taught us. And when we read the scriptures, it's how Jesus constantly and consistently addresses God. It's how we've learned to pray in church by watching our parents, our neighbors, our friends, others, and elders and pastors pray, Heavenly 
Father. God, our Father. Father, God. Because in it, it describes this very intimate relationship we have because of Christ. It reminds us that we have been adopted. That we are sons and daughters of the God Most High because of Christ. Because of what he has done on the cross. And in fact, what Jesus referring as Father was so radical earlier in John chapter 5, it's written this. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Calling God father was blasphemous within the Jewish faith, and they were seeking to kill him, and rightfully so had Jesus not been who he was, God the Son. But we get this glimpse. We get this glimpse because Jesus uses this intimate language. Every time Jesus speaks to God and he uses this word, Father, we get this glimpse into that intimate oneness of the triune God. Of the love that is shared. Of the unity that is there, the one mind, the one will, one purpose. And then Jesus begins. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Here in this context, when Jesus is praying, he's on the brink of his suffering on the cross. And so when he says the hour has come, it's because he was there with God in the beginning. He was there with God when Adam fell from sin. And he was there in Genesis 3. Before God spoke a word of condemnation upon the serpent, God spoke his plan of redemption and Jesus was there. Jesus knew that this hour would come. Jesus was there when God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said, the Messiah is coming. Jesus has known the plan from the beginning. Jesus knows his time has come. His time has come to atone for our sins. And it's glory. That he brings. As the Son received glory, so did the Father, the author of our redemption. The glory that is spoken of here is that as this time has come, God, take this evil that man has created, that we are going to use purposefully for their good. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same words Joseph uses at the end of Genesis. Joseph, who was sold off by his, thrown in a pit, and then that didn't work, and they sold him off, and then he becomes high up within Pharaoh's regime, so high up he was almost second in command, and then when he finally sees his brothers, because there's a great famine, and they're worried about him because they did such unspeakable evil to him, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The cross was meant to be unspeakable evil. It was designed to be a torturous, murderous machine. And this evil that the people had planned against Jesus, well, they already had a plan to use it for our good, for God's glory. See, the cross shines brightly of God's glory for all to see. It's here that sin is blotted out. It is here at the cross that salvation is made real. It is here with Christ's death on the cross that those who believe in him are redeemed, are justified, are adopted as sons and daughters of the God most high, claiming the inheritance of eternal life with God the Father forever and ever. Amen. The cross is glory. And Jesus says, glorify me, glorify me in what I'm about to do so that you are glorified. For Jesus said next, he said, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus isn't asking for authority over all flesh. He has been given it by God. The Father has been stowed upon him so that his actions of living this life un defiled, perfect, without sin, that he takes and is hung on a cross in hopes of shutting him up. He uses it for our good by dying for our sins and putting his righteousness, his perfection upon us so that when God sees us, he sees the perfection of his son, Christ Jesus And he's been given that authority. That authority was given to Jesus so that on the cross he might be able to give life to us. Jesus had the authority. He knew he had the authority. And he knew of the responsibility because he was there. And we know this. God loves us. We know this because the word of God tells us this. We know this because Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is why Christmas is a big deal. It's why we come out with our family. It's why we gather with gifts and celebrate love and joy with one another. Because when Christ was born, hope abounded. And it's because of Christ we know how much we are loved. Right? Paul puts it this way. He says in Romans 5, 8, Here's proof God loves you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the proof that God loves us. And we know this so that we may be redeemed, so that we may have eternal life. Jesus has the authority to give us that eternal life. And on the cross, on that evil, malicious cross, Jesus hangs there with his arms spread wide open, demonstrating 
how big his love is for us, right? Because when you ask one of your kids or a grandkid, how much do you love me? And they go, this much. When you ask Jesus, how much do you love me? He says, this much. Sinner, come home. This is the love of Jesus glorified on the cross so that we may have eternal life with the Father. Because he was perfect. He didn't deserve it. But he did it to satisfy God's justice so that we can be gathered here to know you are loved deeply, intimately by God. And here, the beginning of Jesus' prayer, the opening to his prayer here, if we were to put it in our own words, it would almost sound like this. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the salvation you've given us through your son, Jesus the Christ. This was Jesus' prayer. This is why we adorn our buildings, our sanctuaries. It's why we have homes with crosses on them. It's why we put crosses on accessories, on jewelry, on rings, on anything we can find. Because this cross represents not only the love God has for us, but it shines his glory brightly for the world. For this instrument that was meant for evil. God used for your eternal good. See, the world looks at the cross and looks at it that it's shameful, it's humiliating. The disciples, in fact, were fearful and anxious about it. The day Jesus died was gloomy and gray outside and dark when he passed on a cross at Golgotha. And the disciples, their fears and anxieties upon Jesus passing, go and hide themselves off in a house and lock the door for they were afraid of what was next. They didn't know how life would go on without Jesus. Though Jesus had told them and promised them of his resurrection, of his power, of his love, they were still very afraid. And some of us have lived our lives that very same fear, that very same anxiety. But when we look at the cross, the cross reminds us, Jesus loves you. You are his beloved. Because of that cross, you have been adopted sons and daughters of the God most high to Christians this cross is a symbol of that love that through Christ on the cross we are saved and God is most glorified just as Jesus prayed it would let us pray heavenly father we thank you 
that you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. That he would go and take the evil we created in this world and use it for our eternal good. Lord, we thank you for turning the cross into a symbol of your glory and of your love. That everywhere we see it, may we be reminded how much you love us and how you are always with us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus prayed so that we could hear it. For in hearing him pray for us about how much he loves us, we know how much you love us also. Lord, we ask that you take away the fear and the anxiety we live with that we may not lock ourselves up in a room this year, but that we may see Jesus on the cross and know that the evil that happens to us, you will use for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray.